Hey, I'm Chance from Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, I'm Chris Bowman, former intern. I'm Colin from Louisville. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Welcome to The Sound of Young America. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne. This week's program was taped live at San Francisco Sketchfest in San Francisco, California. It's the one time every year when all of the comedy industry comes together. It's always really fun and and also a, a great honor to be asked to be involved in the festival. We put together a great lineup of guests for our San Francisco shows. Always try and put a little bit of extra effort into San Francisco programs because I know that my parents are probably going to be there. We've got some great San Francisco-y stuff. Singer-songwriter John Vanderslice and sketch comedy group Casper Hauser, two of the best things that San Francisco has to offer, plus Los Angeles stand-up comedian Baron Vaughn, and interviews with two folks who have had really fascinating show business journeys. One of them is comedian and now director Bobcat Goldthwaite. He's still best known as the guy with the crazy voice in the Police Academy movies, or maybe in Hot to Trot. Even back then, Bob's act was more subversive than it seemed at first glance. But now he's deep into subversion. He's almost completely given up stand-up comedy in favor of directing, and he's directed a few critically acclaimed and very dark comedies. Which isn't to say that when the mortgage is due, he might not take a gig or two that's less than prestigious. That's more embarrassing than when I was on Sister Sister. Uh, I'll also talk with Steve Dildarian. You know, it's the rare guy who uh, writes, created, and stars in his own television program who had to take a pay cut to do it. But that's how successful Steve Dildarian was in the advertising industry before he started doing TV. These days, he works on The Life and Times of Tim, the very funny cartoon on HBO. But back then, he was an ad writer. Among the projects that he wrote on was a Super Bowl commercial starring a donkey for Budweiser. He happened to record what's called the scratch track for the commercial. That's the vocal track that they lay in before they hire the actual voiceover talent. That's when that scratch track and... In turn, Steve Dildarian's career started taking off. It came down to two guys, but then it went up to the top, and August Bush III said, this guy sounds more like a donkey. <laughs> so that backhanded compliment kind of launched my career. We're live in San Francisco this week on The Sound of Young America. Coming up in just a minute, comedian Baron Vaughn. What a pleasure to be here. Uh, San Francisco Sketch Fest. We've got a brilliant stand-up comic for you here today. Uh, you might have seen him in the new USA series, which just premiered, uh, Fairly Legal. Um, he's, a, uh, he's one of the most popular and best-known comedians in the Los Angeles stand-up comedy scene. Please welcome to the stage, Baron Vaughn. Hello, audience. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you for clapping, because none of you know who I am. Um, and I appreciate that, because you're not clapping for me, you're clapping for the idea of me. 
which is great. Like the mere Baron Vaughn, that's a concept I can get behind. Here he is. <laughs> I enjoy him so far. I, um, I'll tell you this, I am very funny. And um, honestly, it's because I'm black. And uh, historically, that's always been the case. <laughs> I mean, read the books. I, um, I've been traveling a lot. It's very nice to be in San Francisco. It's a, it's a city so it's good to be in it. I've been going to like some smaller party towns in this country, guys, like Joplin, Missouri. Right, guys? Joplin, guys. Right, guys. Right, Joplin. Guys, right. Joplin, right. Joplin, guys. Guys, right. If you've never been to Joplin, uh, it's because it takes three planes to get to it. Um, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller like Russian dolls that can fall out of the sky. Which means that they kind of don't want you to go there, you know, sort of. Uh, but I remember I got on the, uh, the smallest plane from Springfield to Joplin, and it was uh, 17 seats. Not rows, seats. One of those planes where you get in and you're like, this is an awful idea. Maybe we should just use a catapult and a Trans Am. I feel like that would be safer. Okay, good. I, um, I'm interested in um, relationships, <laughs> not being in them, just from the outside. Just being like, oh, is that what that is? Now I know. Write it down. I'm not even left-handed. But um, I'm just interested in how people meet each other, you know, because before Facebook, there was a thing called meeting people. And the original poke was the pickup line, which uh, they don't work anymore. Pickup lines they don't work because we all know them. We're all familiar. People don't even use the whole phrase, pickup line. They just say, a line. I need the whole phrase or my imagination runs wild when I'm having a conversation with a friend about her night before. Oh, yeah, this guy tried a line on me. He gave you cocaine? No, no. He tried a line on me. He hung up your wet laundry in his old-fashioned backyard. No. He tried a line on me. He made you walk a tightrope between two tall buildings. You're not going to get a woman with those sort of daredevil antics. That's dangerous. And also inconsiderate. I wouldn't date someone that's a convicted skyscrapist. Um... I'm black, you're welcome, as I've mentioned before. But I am mixed race, and I know some of you can't tell by looking because I'm a consistent shade. But my mother was black, and my father was absent. So I'm like half black, half empty. You know what I'm saying, Eureka? I'm an optimist, half full. Okay. Some of you laughed, and the rest of you just got really sad. <laughs> the rest of you just went, oh, now I know why you need to tell jokes. I was at a show the other day and I asked the audience anyone here mixed? Because uh, I wanted them to feel uncomfortable. And the guy's like, yeah, I'm mixed. I was like, uh, what, is your, what is your concoction, sir? What's your ethnic concoction, gentlemen? And he was like, uh, oh yeah, I'm uh, black and black as hell. And I was like, I think I know what half I'm talking to. I didn't know they had black as hell in Connecticut. But I <laughs> I, just did, I didn't know what that meant. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, your mother was a Huxtable and your dad was Lil Wayne? Like, that's the only thing that I can think of. Wheezy, will you please take out the trash? <laughs> I will take out the trash. It's like, it's like my fashion. Everyone has got to know it's not his house. Wayne, you sound like Truman Capote. Well, it is a sort of the same voice, really. Um, I do um, one other impression. And I'll do it for you and uh, leave you alone. <laughs> it's um, a guy's name is Ed Wynn. 
Um, and he was the voice of the Mad Hatter in Disney's Alice in Wonderland, and he sang the song I Love to Laugh, and, and Mary Poppins, and his voice sounds like this. I love to laugh. <laughs> come in, come in. No room. I don't know why I can do that voice, but that's just the way he spoke. So this is my impression of Ed Wynn. Had he gone down a completely different path, this is my impression of him had he become a heart surgeon telling a family their father did not make it through the procedure. Well, this is the part of the job I hate. We went into your father's heart and all the vesicles were so atrophied, it fell apart like a souffle in the oven before it was supposed to be opened. Actually, that doesn't encapsulate the cottage. Have you ever put an ice cream cone in a microwave on high for five minutes? No, it was much messier than that. Have you ever seen an elephant angrily step on a basketball filled with raspberry jam? You're minding your own business and suddenly there's an explosion and you're covered in red. That's what your father's surgery was like. The basketball was his heart and the elephant's foot was the will of God. Anyway, I know you're hurting right now, but I need you to sign this death certificate. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. I'm Aaron Vaughn. Baron Vaughn is a stand-up comedian based in Los Angeles. You can find him online at baronvaughn.com. My next guest on the program is a, uh, a gifted television writer and performer. Uh, he had a long career as an advertising creative guy, uh, having won, literally it says on my piece of paper, 40 or so Clio's. Uh, when you lose track of the number of the award that you've won, uh, by the way, I've won zero or so awards for anything. <laughs> um, he's won 40 or so Clio awards. Uh, he created the Budweiser Lizard, um, and now he is uh, the creator of the very funny, very awkward television program, The Life and Times of Tim, uh, which returns to HBO for its third season later this year. Uh, let's watch a quick clip from the program. Can I ask you something? Yeah? Are you a scoutmaster? Because I'm looking at you and you don't have the uniform on. That's just a green shirt. I'm affiliated with the scouts. That's not what I asked. I think you know it's not. Are you a scoutmaster? I don't refer to myself as a master. That sounds a little oh, okay. egotistical. I'm a, leading the boys. You're just a boy leader of some I'm, kind. What's wrong with that? You are a transient with no money. No, I'm middle class. Taking a bunch of children in a van into a rural area. Give us a van. Please. No. Let me drive the boys out to the woods and have a good time. That is not going to happen. <laughs> Please welcome Steve Dildarian. Oh, how are you, Steve? Doing all right. How are you? I was excited to learn when I was reading about you that you actually live a significant portion of the time here in San Francisco. Yeah, I just found it hard to actually pick up and move to L.A. I like it, and we have to be there for work, but I just prefer it up here. Sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about how your career went from advertising to television. Um, first of all, how did you end up in ad world? In advertising? I just knew I was going to write comedy in some way from, you know, high school probably. 
And uh, I originally wanted to write shows, but I couldn't pick up and just move to L.A. in my situation. So it just seemed like you know, advertising is New York. I can just zip up the turnpike and not have to, to fly across the country. So uh, it was just that a was really It was really just a matter of transportation logistics. <laughs> it kind of was. It didn't seem realistic, honestly. With me and my life and my background, I, flying to L.A. and becoming a comedy writer was not something that seemed like a, I could achieve, honestly. So, you know, I started taking night classes at SVA in New York and did well. And before you know it, you know, it took off. And probably 15 years later, it all came full circle where some of the Budweiser work I did, you know, opened doors. And they said, hey, why don't you come down and write TV shows? And I said, yeah, that was always plan A, you know, a long time ago. Uh, and then it worked out. I, I, read that, um, uh, I read that August Bush III of the famous Bush family that owns the Bush Brewing Companies um, was part of how you ended up becoming a performer. Oh, yeah. With the, uh, I wrote a commercial where there was a donkey who wanted to be a Clydesdale. It was his, the dream of his life. And it was on the Super Bowl in, like, 05. Um, and we must have cast, you know, hundreds and hundreds of voices in every city in the country. And you know, we had a bunch of celebrities audition. And it came down to two guys. And internally at our company, no one wanted to use me probably just because of that, who's this guy trying to slip his own voice in there. You know, you read things as a scratch track, just because something's got to, you have to look at the edit. And I think we all got used to hearing me, but then it went up to the top, and August Bush III said, this guy sounds more like a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> so that backhanded compliment kind of launched my career. And after that, I was uh, the voice of a, a toilet in an Ace Hardware commercial. So, <laughs> And here you sit today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to ask you about the transition from writing for television commercials to writing for pilot scripts, because one of the great challenges of writing a television commercial, I've never written a television commercial, but what I imagine to be one of the great challenges is that not only do you have to uh, convey whatever brand qualities the client wants, you know, that this is a fun beer or a cool beer or whatever, um, but you also have to tell, uh, you have to have a real narrative in the context of 24 seconds or however much time you have before the logo comes on screen. Yeah. Um, and television is a very different situation where you're talking about 24 minutes. Um, was it difficult to gain those other muscles to do something that was such a different form? You know, I'm not sure I've gained those other muscles. I, I, uh, <laughs> I think that's why Tim is, feels a little different and a little unique in that way because it doesn't come from the same mold. You know, my strengths are in creating characters quickly and create, creating characters that you feel like you know very well in a short amount of time and rhythm and dialogue and pacing. And that's, you know, comic timing. The stories in Tim aren't particularly sophisticated or well-structured. Even now, it's just the, the honest truth. They're, they're kind of dumb, simple stories. But they work moment to moment because you, you can keep laughing and you love the characters and you're engaged and you, you care. Uh, so I am actually going out of my way to not learn everything about it and to not become too good at it in all parts of the show, writing, drawing, animating. <laughs> I really am very leery of getting too good at it. I, I think uh, with this project, with this show, that's what's, what's good about it, that it's just uh, it feels honest and real and feels like a bunch of people are just screwing around and having fun and stumbled on something. 
You really were kind of screwing around and having fun when you stumbled on yeah. this. I mean, I, I go, when I interview animators, often they come from specifically from a visual arts and animation background. And people who make these shows, sometimes people who are just come from comedy world or television world make an animated show. But often it's people who have invested their lives into the world of animation and they think about everything in terms of, you know, how they can punch jokes by changing the size of a character's head or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, you, I, I get the impression that Angry Unpaid Hooker, the first um, short film that you did that, that led to the life and times of Tim, was something that was almost happenstantially animated. Yeah, it's really uh, it's a hard thing to even explain because uh, it happened so organically and so real where the, everything about it, the drawings, it were just me with a big pen and my girlfriend colored them in and we said, do you think we can make animation? Can we string together a bunch of stills in iMovie and make it move? Uh, and in the, the writing, it was just, can I write a, a six-minute piece and have it you know, feel like something? Everything about the show was learning from scratch as if... I had never, I really hadn't done much of a voice except a donkey commercial. I hadn't drawn anything. I hadn't edited anything. So we learned the skills to make an animated show the hard way. And the thing that I think is the big difference and most that makes it feel original is we were trying to make it great. Everyone says, oh, it's so crude and so raw and so terrible looking. I was trying to make it look amazing looking. <laughs> there was nothing about it that we were... Most people would go the other way. They have the skills. They have the talent. They try to make it look raw as a look. They try to make it look this way as a, as a, to make it different. All I was trying to do was make it great and funny. And the earnestness, I think, comes through. You know, when something's original and unique, you, you can't put your finger on how you got there. I couldn't do it again today if I tried. You know, I kind of... That's my thing. This week's show was recorded live at SF Sketchfest in San Francisco. My guest is Steve Dildarian. He had a vibrant career in advertising before he quit and took a pay cut to create the HBO series The Life and Times of Tim. The show has this amazing tone that is very consistent. Um, it's one of the slowest comedies I've ever seen on television. Um, and it is, uh, it's just driven completely by kind of discomfort, basically relatively few jokes in the show as well. Um, do you you kind of have to defend that tone? Like, do you have to remember not to be sitcom-y when you're making it, not to get to Hollywood writer-y? Honestly, it's like I said before, I don't think about much of anything when we're making it. It's all just out of instinct. I don't, I'm not trying to make it slow or fast. I'm not trying to make it jokes or not jokes. Usually people analyze it after the fact and say, oh, you don't really write jokes. I'm like, what do you mean I don't write jokes? I'm, I thought I was writing jokes. <laughs> uh, but when they analyze it, it's like, oh, no, jokes are written like this. Your stuff is just funny in the situation. or it's, and, uh, Maybe I'm not as much of a student of it as, as other people are, but... And maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know, but I do it out of instinct, and I just write what makes me laugh. Usually if I'm writing a script, I, I'm pretty good at making myself giggle as I'm sitting there typing. You know, it's, I, that's when I know it's working or when it's not. So beyond that, I, I just don't think about it a whole lot. After the second season of the show, it was, as I understand it, and you can, you can color in the, between the lines here, but as I understand it, it was canceled for a while, and then stopped being canceled? 
Pretty much. We, uh, and I, I <laughs> is knew, that even a thing? <laughs> it is now. Uh, they, I knew it was canceled longer than most people did because first we didn't want to tell anyone because there was a good chance someone else would buy it. So we kept it kind of quiet. And then we kind of knew there was rumblings that they might change their mind earlier than we could announce. So for a good seven months or six months, I knew we were canceled. Most people knew for about two or three months. But yeah, it was it was crazy. They, we thought we were doing great. You know, everyone was into it and kept doing better and better. And they called. I was on vacation. You know, after the season wrapped, they called in the middle of the vacation and said, "You're canceled." So that kind of ruined that that trip. Um, but yeah, they they still haven't explained it, and they don't think they need to. I don't care. They if the answer is yes, I'll I'll take that as the final word. But they, uh, who knows? Maybe other networks were interested. That might have played a role. I know. You know, Adult Swim and Independent Film Channel, Comedy Central, all expressed interest. So sometimes that plays a role. But did they always loved the show. I think it was a tough decision to cancel it, to be honest. Did, did your did like your life flash before your eyes? Did you did you think about you know going back to your like bath full of Cleos? <laughs> <laughs> Not, they I are, presume they are you have a bath full of Cleos. <laughs> Yeah, we keep them in the bathtub. Uh, no, it's um, it was it was actually a weird, terrible kind of stretch because I wasn't. The thing I learned about myself is no, I'm not going back to advertising. This is my new job. This is what I'm going to do, and it's just very hard and time consuming to create something new the right way without just saying ah, I'll take a job because I got to make money. So I just burned through a good amount of my cash and sat there for seven months uh, waiting because. I, I, a lot of people are telling me someone's going to buy the show. You're not. The show's not done. There's too many people that love it. If HBO doesn't want it, you know, someone will buy it. Did so, you have any agency? Was there like anything that you could do? Nothing. I sat there I, <laughs> trying to write, you know, other shows, other animated shows, other screenplays. But that's you know, you're ready for a year or two of pitching and talking before you have a job to go to. So it was a little. Uh, it was an odd time for me. And every month, every week of it was always, this network wants it, get ready. You're going to work next week. And that went on for seven months. So it was a very weird stretch and a stretch where I realized how much I appreciated what I had, you know, and all the fans that were on these, the Facebook page saying, you know, we've got to save it. And they had a good little fan base there. But um, did you it get, made it that much greater when it came back, you know? Did you get like a phone call where they checked in to see if you had called no backsies. <laughs> it was it was a very staggered kind of reveal. It was they, they actually did it to us twice, which was cruel. You know, they called and said we HBO changed their mind. They want to do it. Put a budget together. A week later, they said, Ah, nah, we're not doing it. <laughs> so that was you know the second time when it happened. Four months later, I said, I'm just not going to believe you until either you send me a paycheck or you know <laughs> there's an office to go to. Uh, it was it was a weird time, but you know like I said now that it's back it's everyone appreciates it so much and the actors, the the staff it's just such a great you know you kind of can you realize what you had there the first time. Well, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Sandy Young America. It sure was really thing. a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. Steve Dildarian, ladies and gentlemen. Steve Dildarian is the creator of HBO's The Life and Times of Tim. You can get the first season of the show on DVD now. The second season DVDs and the third season on television are coming later this year. We're live in San Francisco this week. When we come back in just a minute, the crazy showbiz journey of Bobcat Goldthwaite. It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. The Sound of Young America and MaximumFun.org are proud sponsors of the third annual Women in Comedy Festival in Boston, Massachusetts, March 9th 
through 13. The third annual festival features Kristen Schaal performing in her hilarious sketch comedy duo with Kurt Brownholler. It also features close friend of MaximumFun.org, Jen Kirkman, past guest on both Jordan Jesse Go and The Sound of Young America, and the very funny Morgan Murphy. Shows take place all over Boston, and the goal is to create a place for people to experience the comedic expression of women, see strong female performers, and above all, be entertained. They book some really great comics. For more information on the festival and how to get tickets, you can visit womenincomedyfestival.com. That's www.womenincomedyfestival.com. I'm Jesse Thorne, and this week, The Sound of Young America was recorded live on tape at SF Sketchfest in San Francisco. You know, I, um, I once talked to uh, one of the members of the Upright Citizens Brigade when I was down in Los Angeles, and I talked to them about doing a show here at SF Sketchfest uh, with our next guests. And, and our next guests live here in San Francisco where they're um, all have highly paid professional occupations, moderate, on this range between moderately and highly paid professional occupations. And this guy from the Upright Citizens Brigade told me that, that these guys had opened for uh, the UCB. And his reaction, having watched their set from backstage, uh, was to welcome them off the stage by saying, wow, we had a TV show and you guys don't have one? Um, I think they're really one of the best uh, comedy groups in the world. Um, you may have read their three top-selling books. Uh, please welcome to the stage my good friends and, uh, in some ways, my idols, Casper Hauser. we go back to Circus Circus, Vagula? I'm freaking thirsty. I, I don't think I can go any further, Mr. Vagula. It's all right, Brad. You don't have to. This is it. We're here. No, no. This isn't Burning Man. <laughs> You're right. It's Burning Boy. Burning Boy? Burning Man for Boy Scouts. That's stupid, Vagula. What are we doing? We're doing Burning Boy. Does that sound stupid to you? A little bit. bit. (laughs) Why don't we we just camp a mile that way and go to the real Burning Man? The real Burning Man? The real Burning Man making a smell wagon? Is that real? (laughs) Hmm? Giving away bananas? (laughs) Jesus. No scoutmaster would take his troop to the real Burning Man. Well, why'd you tell us we were going then? To trick you. So what are we going to do at Burning Boy? We're going to make God's eyes. And we're also going to learn how to cook some hobo pancakes. And when it's all over, we're going to burn a puppet. No, we're not. Button up your shirt, Colin. Screw you. I'm your older brother. <laughs> but I'm a scoutmaster and you're still a weebelow. Because you won't give out the badges. You have to earn the badges. Earn them? I got four kids. You know? I may be getting my own cell phone. You can't swim, Colin. You haven't promoted these guys either. Tim can swim. Brad's 49. 
I, I'm fine. I'm fine. You want to lead the troop? Is that what this is about? Huh? You want to be the guy that gets up at 9 o'clock in the morning? How about designing a phone tree for four guys? <laughs> it's about being responsible for three other human beings. Four when Brendan was alive. Now, come on, where's your spirit, huh? Let's do it for him. Arrowhead and eagle feather, a Boy Scout troop always stays together. Nice. Erecting tents from town to town, a Boy Scout never wears a frown. Okay. Exploring nature's flora and fauna goes a lot better with marijuana. No, 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 no. Trapping beaver, slapping beaver, compass points towards fun. Honesty. Uh, Loyalty. Salt Lake City. Uh, ethnic, um, what's the thing where there's no racism? Oh, ethnic cleaning. No, 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 no. Hey, hey, what's next? What's, what's the next thing at Burning what's Boy? What's the next thing in Burning Boy? The setting up of camp. You two, start building the tent. That's looking nice. Hey, That's look. What are, you, what are you doing? You're walking right through our tent. It's just mime. <laughs> yeah, but it was neat. You can't sleep in a mime tent, Vagula. Where's our real camping stuff? Oh, it's not my fault. We had a phone tree, remember? Oh, 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 oh. Scoutmaster of Disaster. <laughs> are, are we going to die like Brendan? No. Brendan fell. Be a vulture, not a victim. When's your grandma's boyfriend coming to pick us up? Pampa? Thirteen days. We are going to die. Stop saying that. I can't breathe. We need to make a ham radio. You two, start digging. Don't do it. It's over, Vagula. This troop is tired of living out your egotistical fantasy. We're getting too old for this stuff. We had some good times. I never fondled you guys. I paid for a lot of this stuff out of my own pocket. I'm taking over. It's getting hotter. If we don't go to the real Burning Man, we will die. We desperately need bananas, acid, boobies. <laughs> Are you two with me? Yes, definitely. Oh, wait, me, 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 me. The sketch comedy group Casper Hauser are the authors of three books, including Weddings of the Times. You can find them online at casperhauser.com, and you can check out their podcast, which is absolutely 100% for free, on our website at MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne, and this week, The Sound of Young America is live at SF Sketchfest in San Francisco. Our next guest on the program uh, was an extraordinarily successful stand-up comedian and actor in the 1980s and 90s uh, with an outrageous persona and a ridiculous voice. Um, He remade himself essentially in his own actual image in over the past 15 years. He's become a very successful director of both television and film. His last two feature films have been shown in the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, He directed the Jimmy Kimmel live program and Important Things with Dimitri Martin. His most recent film starred Robin Williams. It was called World's Greatest Dad. Let's watch a clip. 
Insanity laughs under pressure. We're cracking. Can't we give ourselves one more chance? Why can't we give love one more chance? Why can't we give love? Give love. Give love. Stop. Jason, you didn't write that. That's a Queen Bowie song, Under Pressure. What were you thinking? I didn't think you knew that one. (laughs) Jason, I'm white. (laughs) Thank you. Please welcome Bobcat Goldthwait. Good work. Ah. I didn't, I didn't realize that you had started performing when you were a teenager, and the first time that you were on Letterman, you were 20. Yeah, I was 20, but I, I started when I was 15, you know, so it was, what, what were you doing? I was, you know, at that point, my actor, it wasn't even audible, you know what I mean? I'd come out and be like, and, and it, it was really, I was trying to make fun of stand-up comedy. I was never really a big fan of it, you know? <laughs> and uh, I thought it'd be funny just to be this guy who shouldn't be on stage, and then, lo and behold... I got popular, and then I had to become the very thing I hated. You know what I mean? So, it's a, I mean, it's it such a horrible vortex to fall into. It, it was such an odd world that you entered in the early to mid 1980s, where yeah, I was huge in the 80s. Stand up was so, <laughs> but I mean, where stand up was so, I we're was gonna the get main cook of the 80s. I was so where stand up was. <laughs> Growing so fast, it yeah. was like such an exploding medium that just that just distinctiveness. Yeah, you know that doing something that was just nobody had seen before. Well, it was weird, and all the persona comedy that came out of it. You know, I just yeah. did a show with Emo the other uh, a couple months ago. Like, e- emo Phillips, a, emo a, Phillips. another yeah, stand-up comic. We're yeah. tight, and uh, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't some skinny whiny guy with eyeliner um, <laughs> singing folk songs. Um, I. Um, I, yeah, it was the uh, monsters of 80s persona comedy. But um, it was really strange, you know, because I started my comedy a long time ago, and, and I was always, uh, you know, I just was this, you know, Andy Kaufman was a big influence on me and stuff. But I don't think Andy Kaufman would do this interview. Well, one, he's dead, but two, I don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, no, we, we tried to book him on the show. I, uh, you were our second choice. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not I'm flattered, you know. Uh, I uh, it, it would, uh, but um, I yeah. So I I don't know what to say. I, I just never wanted to do traditional stand up, and I was always doing weird things when I got started. Like my early act would just be me reading a dear John letter and crying, you know. And I go, thank you. It feels really good to be here tonight. Uh, it doesn't feel good to be, here. you know. And I get really mad and stuff at the crowd because uh, they were laughing as I was in tears, and uh, <laughs> it, it didn't have any jokes. It was just really weird. And then I go, now I'd like to gut a fish. And um, my roommate would have a, a fish. You know, I go, does anyone in the audience have a fish? And then he'd give me like this. And one night, it was rancid. I thought you just meant your roommate just had a, would have a fish at any given time. Like yeah. you could count on your roommate to have a fish. Yeah, well, he was, like that was the source of this yeah, bit. He was the Gloucester fisherman. Uh, <laughs> the Gloucester. Uh, no, he, he he was a plant. You know, it's, it's sure. That's not like you know. Anyone have a fish? <laughs> no. But there's a baby here. That's weird. What is your target audience? <laughs> Hello, baby. I think ah. it's not really bound by age. I would say the uncomprehending. Okay, the uncomprehending. <laughs> Hello, baby. 
it's all downhill from now. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, and I got a fish, but once it was rancid because it was in our trunk of the car, and then this woman threw up in the front row, and then I put the mic down so you could hear her, you know, and uh, that would be my act, you know, when I first started. What's and that? the guy who ran the club was a Chinese man. It was the Ding Ho in Boston, and he'd go, Bobby, you weird. <laughs> Fair. Bobby, you weird. Did you, did you, was it fun for you? I mean, was it something that you were doing because you wanted to do it? And when did it start to turn into something different? Well, I loved stand-up when I was a kid, but then by the time I became a late teenager, I kind of turned on it. Now, I'm not saying that um, I hate all stand-up comedy, but you know what I mean? It's just, uh, I I do think it's very limiting in a a way. I mean, there are, of course, plenty of brilliant people, you know, but, but, but it's, for an audience, you know, you can only... It, it really is like just having dessert, you know? Um, I sound really pretentious now. Now that I'm a filmmaker, if I heard myself talk, I'd punch me in the throat. But um, <laughs> All I ask is that you not say that you're just here to tell stories. I just, I just like to tell stories. I like to take the audience on a ride, you know? Um, but... Um, it's weird because I had uh, some kind of success at one point. I, I don't really pursue that anymore. Although I do do stand up to uh, uh, well, who am I kidding? It's the alimony tour. When you see me on the road, uh, uh, <laughs> it feels great to be back here. You know, we're paying all for a pool that none of us swim in. Um, that sounded way dirtier than I wanted at the time. I'm trying to be clean on your show. Um, so uh, it kind of started becoming a drag, and then, um, and then for a long time, you know, I really kind of had this thing in my head like, oh, if I do, you know, where you, you start thinking, I wish I could teach a course, you know, to people who start popping and, and say, okay, first of all, don't buy the house, you know, everyone's going to tell you go buy a house, and, and don't do this, and don't do that, and when that voice inside you says no, go, yeah, okay, no, do you know what I mean? There was a voice in me going, don't do police academy. You're going to be talking about it for the next 45 years. But I said, eh, all right, I'll do police academy. No, I didn't know that. I wish I could invent a time machine and talk to the 23-year-old Bobcat Goldthwait and go, dude, really, this is the only thing you're going to be known for if you, if you do this. If you, if, you had a, if you had done a time machine, what, what would you have told that 23-year-old Bobcat? That's what I would have told me to go, you know, bite me. You know what I mean? I wouldn't have listened to me. I'd say... You're, how did you come back here from the future? And why don't you just give me lottery numbers? Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't regret those things, but it's just kind of like, um, I know no matter what I do or achieve, and, you know, I mean, that, 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 that will be my obit photo. It'll be me in a police uniform with a talking horse next to me. And, and they go, oh, he also cured AIDS. But uh, he played Zed in Police Academy. <laughs> it's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We taped this week's show live on stage at the San Francisco Sketch Fest. My guest is Bobcat Goldthwait. He made his name as a wild and crazy comic on stage and on film in the 1980s. He's since transformed himself into a critically acclaimed director. You you did this wonderful little arc on the Larry Sanders show, the um, uh, HBO satire of late-night comedy uh, from the 1990s that's now on on DVD. Right. 
And um, it was right after you had, if I remember correctly, gone on Arsenio and like spray painted the walls. At one point, did you light Leno on fire or Arsenio? No, I set the Tonight Show on fire. Uh, well, I set a chair on the Tonight <laughs> right. Show on fire. Not the entire thing. I like when you run into people, they're always like, you set Letterman on fire. Not that they should know, but oh, yeah. Yeah, so you, so you set the Tonight Show on fire and did crazy stuff on Arsenio. Right. And then you did an arc on Larry Sanders, and the arc on Larry Sanders was that you, that you were going to be the, the the guy who hosted the show after Larry Sanders, right. or you were going to be Larry's guest host, I can't remember. And um, the tension of it was you being introduced by Larry Sanders as a really bright, interesting, <laughs> funny guy, and try, you trying to figure out whether you were going to just act crazy like Bobcat right. Goldthwait, the do, stage character, yeah. or be someone who is an actual person. And I think that's like, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole thing was... Um, you know, like, during that period when I was very destructive on shows, it wasn't, like, um, a career move, you know? It wasn't like, <laughs> I'll do this, and then I'll get my own series. I was really, you know, when I look back, I was just, like, really angry, and I was over it. You know, I, I would get on TV shows, and my career wasn't going forward, and so I, I was really frustrated, and it was very, you know, I, I kind of thought a little bit, here's a pretentious thing, but it's like, okay... What if I start doing stuff that's not even planned, you know? Uh, and the problem with that is sooner or later you end up in jail. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't end up on The Tonight Show. I, 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 got, uh, I, I, uh, I had to go to court, four years of probation. and yeah, I Really? Front, yeah, I stood in front of a judge. And, and my attorney, she goes, plead not guilty when they say I go, uh, I saw the footage. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's me, you know, not in this... There's a third arsonist in the grassy knoll. I might be going down on this one. Uh, I don't think that's a really solid thing. And then, and and the funny thing is, is I had to do uh, PSAs, you know. So like, do you know what I mean? That that was, you know, that's 45 minutes. I'll never get back. That day, I went in and filmed it. It was like, and it, and I usually do a bit where I'm like, you know, hi, I'm Bob Kickley. If you're ever on the talk show, don't set it on fire. Ah, you know. Back to you, McGruff. Um, uh, here's your old friend, Kelsey Grammer, with some safe driving tips. You know, um, it just keeps going. All right. Well, hi. Hi, I'm Chris Brown for domestic violence. So I, um, I, I, I uh, but the real, can I do this as an exclusive? The real, sure. The real commercial was way more bur- embarrassing. I don't do this, actually. And I, I found it recently. And I was, my, the editor that I work with, Jason Stewart, we were laughing really hard. And uh, this is the commercial, and I've never done this anywhere. It's a real PSA. And I go, ah, hi, I'm Bobcat Goldway. I can switch back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you're seriously injured in a fire <laughs> It's so embarrassing It's so embarrassing That's more embarrassing than when I was at Sister Sister um, but, but you know, so I had this persona I exploited it, I was embarrassed And then about six or seven years ago I was like, I'm done, man. I'm not going to pursue or do things that don't make me happy. And if I'm broke, I'm broke. But, you know, the sense of... Uh, I think in, in America, we don't really have this idea of... Uh, fulfillment is really unimportant, you know? To be fulfilled as, as a, a creative person, that's not important. What's important is being number one. And, and you know, I mean, we are the People's Republic of Spring Break. So uh, I don't... 
I think people think it's weird that I, like, I choose not to be in the movies I make, and uh, I, we just make them. We don't have an agenda. My, my wife, she wasn't my wife, she read the script for Sleeping Dogs Lie, which was Stay at the time was the name. And she read it, and she's like, this is a good script. I go, oh, thanks. She goes, we should just make it. I go, well, I don't have any money. She goes, well, that doesn't matter. We'll just start. And that's really how we made it. We got a crew from Craigslist, shot in two weeks, and then it got on Sundance. So that's how you do it. It's really easy. No, but uh, I, trust me, when Sundance called, I, I, really, I was working at the Jimmy Kimmel show, and I thought it was his cousin Sal doing a prank call. Hi, I'm the president of show business. You're in Sundance, you know. Uh, but it really was. And so that, that is my life. That is true. Like, once I was at Sundance, and they had all the directors having a breakfast, and Robert Redford's talking, and I hear this, I hear cling, cling, chomp, chomp, cling, cling, cling. I go, who is eating? And I was like, oh, me. I'm the <laughs> and I was like six feet away from Robert Redford going, oh, have you tried these rolls? And, uh, and so afterwards, they go, Bob wants to see you. And I'm like, Bob, who? What? You know, and it was Robert Redford. And he goes to me, he goes, you know, your, uh, your film is very reminiscent of Edward Elby's uh, The Goat, Who is Sylvia? Uh, have you ever seen that play? And I did twice, but I just lied to him. I go, no. Like, like I thought I was getting kicked out of Sunday. It's like, no. I create entirely in a vacuum, Bob. This is a 100% original idea. Edward Elby, poof, he's a hack. Uh, I want to ask you about that idea of you know, the lack of personal fulfillment in the world is uh, in the United States. Because um, I thought that was an interesting theme in uh, World's Greatest Dad. If I could sort of encapsulate the setup for World's Greatest Dad, minor spoiler ahead. It's about a father played by Robin Williams whose son is a, a real, uh, a real jerk. And his son uh, dies accidentally while in an act of onanism. Um, and essentially, this, the film from that point forth is the story of the deification of the son. Yeah. As everyone sort of takes that son it, it, to mean something that glorifies themselves. Like every single character right. in the film and takes that son as someone... Everybody makes any death about them. And, and the well, no, I shouldn't say everybody in anything, but you know, I mean, I, I experienced a lot of death. Of, I think when I wrote that, and it was just like people. Uh, I think people's first instinct is usually kind of good, and then it, it gets corrupted, and they make a death about themselves. You well, know I mean, saying? death is like the biggest thing that could happen. Like most people. I can't speak for everyone here, but I am horrified of death. Sure. And so when someone else dies, I'm both sad that they died for them, and it reminds me that I'm going to die, and that's horrifying. Yeah, that is horrifying. I, I, I mean, I, I really uh, want to make a movie about that. I just haven't figured out how yet. You know, it, in my movies, people die. In a way, the, the movie is about Robin Williams... <laughs> Character. Um, <laughs> look, I know it's. Not, look, here's the thing. He does become fulfilled, and he doesn't get all the trappings that we, as an American culture, uh, use as fulfillment. You know, they because I know, uh, you know that that uh, I used to use an, an analogy that like um, my analogy was if uh, like you know at a, at a at a dog track when the dog catches the rabbit, uh, he doesn't want to run anymore. So they reward the overachieving mutt by destroying him. 
And in show business, when you catch the rabbit, they just wait for you to destroy yourself. So um, <laughs> this is getting way heavier than I wanted to today. But, but, um, but instead of destroying myself, I kind of put the brakes on and, and, and just started making movies, you know. And I'm really, really happy now. You know, and I still go out on the road, but, but uh, you know, we, we make them very uh, down and dirty. You know, Robin was like going, so what is this going to be, eight or nine weeks? And I go, if I was making Lawrence of Arabia, no man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I, some of them, like this next one, I'll, I'll shoot really quickly and, uh, with, uh, with all my friends. And it's very like a pirate ship, you know. Like on Sleeping Dogs Lie, there's a scene where... It's a key scene, and it's in a garage. And we didn't have a garage when we were filming the scene. And I go to this guy, Marty. I go, what's going on in that house across the street? They go, oh, someone just moved. And, uh, well, I can't say. Somehow the lock fell off, let's say. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and then we rolled the car in, and we shot this scene in a home that wasn't uh, any of ours. It was just an empty house that was for sale. And uh, <laughs> the crew was all these young kids. And I go, we have to be really quiet today because... Uh, this is a very heavy scene for the actors. And, and, and one of the kids goes, you don't have a permit again, do you? And I go, dude, I don't know whose house this is. So, uh, uh, you know, that's how I make these movies. Well, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America again. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you on the well, show. Well, thanks for having me on. Bobcat Goldthwait. Bobcat Goldthwait on the stage of the Eureka Theater at SF Sketchfest in San Francisco. Bobcat's most recent film, World's Greatest Dad, starring Robin Williams, is available on DVD. And you can visit him on the website at bobcatswebsite.com. The great San Francisco singer-songwriter John Vanderslice after a break. It's The Sound of Young America Live in San Francisco from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey friends, every Sound of Young America opens with an announcement that... The show is supported by people like you. In fact, everything we do at MaximumFun.org is supported by people like you. And the time of year for you to support our programs is just around the corner. The annual Max Fun Drive is coming. The first two weeks of March of this year, we've got all kinds of amazing thank you gifts and cool programming lined up for you. All kinds of special treats and neat stuff. All we ask is that you take the opportunity to support this show that you enjoy, or else why would you be getting it on your iPod? So, get ready for good times and great people supporting MaximumFun.org in the Max Fun Drive. The first two weeks of March, just around the corner. I'm Jesse Thorne, and this week, The Sound of Young America was recorded live on tape at SF Sketchfest in San Francisco. Uh, our next guest, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is one of San Francisco's real treasures. We've done the show a couple times in San Francisco, and uh, unfortunately, he's, he's been on the road in the past uh, when we've done the show. And so I was so happy uh, that he was in town, and not only in town, but... Uh, releasing a brand new record called White Wilderness. Um, he is a, an accomplished uh, producer as well as one of the finest singer-songwriters in the world of rock and roll music. And I proposed to him on Twitter, and he accepted. <laughs> Please welcome Mr. John Vanderslice. 
How is everyone? Isn't this show pretty incredible? I'm going to play some new songs. I've never played that song before. 
This is a song I wrote uh, imagining the last show that I will ever play. I like playing live, but there, as with anything that you do a thousand times in a row, there's a burnout factor. Um, so I um, just imagine what would I do on the last show that I played. And this is it. It's called After It Ends. After it ends Pack the cord I'd wrap the cords right Clean the cupboards bare After it ends from John Vanderslice. His new album, In Stores Now, is called White Wilderness. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, edited by Nick White in Chicago. Our music provided to us by Dan Wally. Julia Smith is our producer. Special thanks to Mo Bettics from SF Sketchfest and all the folks at SF Sketchfest. You can find out more information about the annual festival in San Francisco at sfsketchfest.com. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me, jesse at maximumfun.org, and I hope you will visit us online where you can download all of this stuff for free. Subscribe to our free podcast and our other free podcasts, like the comedy talk show Stop Podcasting Yourself with Graham Clark and Dave Shumka, all the way from Vancouver, British Columbia. It's all online, maximumfun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. 
Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. 